go if you want to do it. All right, dude, I'm recording. Sounds smart. <laughs> oh, dear. Oh, dear. Say something smart. Um, um, yeah, anyway. Okay. Hi. Hello. Hello. Welcome to My Views Are My Own Book Club. Book Club. Book Club. With Doug. <laughs> with, with, with me, your host, Doug McDonald. And friend to all creatures, great and small, special co-host, Ramsey Demeter. Hello, Ramsey sir. Demeter. How you doing? Thanks for having me. I'm so excited to join this book club with you. I appreciate it. Oh, thanks, man. Uh, I guess I fucked it up. I, I thought you were going to introduce yourself. Mm. Mm. Oh, yeah. Hi, I'm Ramsey. And uh, I'm sitting here in Vermont on a beautiful day. There's some clouds passing through on these verdant hills. Um, you know, I... Uh, I'm a timber framer. I'm a builder, a natural builder, as well as a farmer and land steward. And um, ready to get into it. I think about this stuff all the time. I think about climate change and fighting despair. And oh, speaking of despair, there's a lot of it. But you know, we can get into that later. And uh, one of the reasons that I picked, uh, you know, not picked, but the reason I asked Ramsey to come co-host this particular episode is because, uh, and if anybody that's been listening to this podcast for a long time. Season one, episode four, Ramsey did the wilderness survival episode with me as a wilderness survival expert. And I figured, you know, what's the point of being a wilderness survival expert if there's no wilderness to survive in, you know? Mm, absolutely. Absolutely. It's rough. You know, I, I think about how much time one needs to spend as a modern human trying to uh, learn the skills to, to really learn to and the mindset to really learn to, to live, um, you know, basically as a hunter gatherer existence. And it's a uh, it's pretty astounding. It's, it's scary. You know, the, I haven't gone full hermit yet. I'd, uh, I, I kind of idolize that lifestyle, but at the same time, it's like, if you go full hermit, you know, like meanwhile, climate change is still going on. Meanwhile, like all this bullshit is still going on in society respect to the hermits out there. But, um, yeah, I, I think I just, I needed to be more engaged. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Be a part of society, be a part of everything that's going down. So. Well, I haven't even introduced this book yet. We are, yeah. we are one step at a time, homie. We are talking about the highly controversial book, How to Blow Up a Pipeline by Andreas Malm. And I'll say, man, we have come a long way because from your episode, where like I literally every sketch I did as, as a little breakaway from your interview was me just absolutely just making fun of Switzerland, just ruthlessly. And then here I am, like basically like halfway glorifying this Swedish philosopher. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, Sweden and Switzerland are different places, but you know, uh, not to me, Europeans, baby. All, all Europeans look the same to me and you, so that's cool. I do. I what? What is the difference between Sweden and Switzerland? Can you even tell me? It's located in the middle of Europe and is a mountainous country that hasn't actually technically gone to war with any other nations forever, or something. Oh, yeah. And there's gnomes that live in Zurich that keep everybody's money situated. So that's fun. And Sweden, I feel like Sweden, there's like a lot of foresters there and they make really good knives. And there's like a lot of like backcountry shit going on there. Dude, we're right back on it again. Swiss yep. army knives are not. They're not where it's at, dude. <laughs> it's the Sweden army knife you got to get, man. It's just uh, a knife. Like I said, I'll record something at the beginning, too, just as another disclaimer. But just... One more time with you present, dude. This is just a theoretical discussion. It's just a book we read. We're just two, we're just two guys, man. We're just two guys who read a book about a subject we're interested in. 
And the last thing we want you to do is to go out and get in trouble and do anything illegal, you know, and don't, you know, you don't want to go spend time in jail. You don't want your family to be sad that you're locked up. And uh, the way things are in the world, around, like, especially here in the United States, the punishments for like environmentalists that do even minor vandalism. I mean, you're, you're better off being like a, like a serious, like murderer. You'll probably get less time. So having said that, <clears throat> this is a theoretical conversation. We're not telling anybody to do anything. <laughs> okay. So I still getting over COVID still have a cough. <clears throat> it's just won't go away. Gnarly. You got that uh, long COVID son. Yeah, no, I got that long COVID for real. That's why I, I did a 13 mile bike ride today and coughs a lot of shit up, man. I just got to keep doing nice. this. Yeah, purify those lungs. So speaking of going into initial impressions, the reason that I wanted to read this book in the first place was because uh, because, I, because I read Ministry for the Future by Kim Stanley Robinson, and he had mentioned that this book in particular was one of the influences for how he uh, developed like the the uh it's a you know it's a fiction that that's a novel this is non you know this is non-fiction this is a this is an argument basically it's a manifesto but basically what he's you know when he is creating the eco-terrorists the people that are fighting you know this uh inevitable climate collapse he got, he got a lot of his ideas from andreas mom so mm. right yeah yeah mm. in uh kim stanley robinson's the ministry for the future one of the main um i guess you could say like uh, direct action groups that came out of India following this um, this nasty heat wave, which is uh, on a side note, very relevant to like, God, I was looking, I was just like following Delhi, just like on the weather app, just tracking the temperatures that they had like this summer. It was nasty. They had at least like six weeks of triple digits, pretty much. It was insane. Anyway, so yeah, Kim Stanley Robinson had what? The, uh, the children of Kali, he called yeah. them. He's, he's, were, also, uh, yeah, he's also a very prophetic writer. You know, this, this heat wave in India, he, he was, that is the uh, catalyst. It's the first thing that happens in the book and it starts everything else. Right, right. But yeah, the, yeah. the children of Kali are the, are the, the eco-terrorists. They sink super yachts. They right. sink ocean liners. They mm. stop um, industrial fishing boats. These things that are like hastening our, our demise that, that can be right. stopped. So, uh, yeah, what are, what are some of your initial thoughts on this book? We got How to Blow Up a Pipeline by Andreas Malm. Right, well, I guess, dude, uh, sure, first going straight into it. Like I said, I was inspired to read it, read it by Kim Stanley Robinson. Uh, he's one of the people that I respect the most as, a, as an author and a thinker and someone who dives into near future climate possibilities. I would say that Ministry for the Future was one of the most impactful books I'd ever read. Uh, oh, wow. but having having listened to Kim Stanley Robinson talk about Andreas Malm, uh, he's actually said that even though he uses Andreas Malm's uh, rhetoric and his beliefs in the the novel that he wrote, he personally does not believe what Andreas Malm believes. Uh, Kim Stanley Robinson is a pacifist and a Buddhist, mm. and he mm. thinks that uh, he honestly believes that through uh peaceful protests and uh begging our legislators to you know do anything or at all ever that is actually the way to go no disrespect mr robinson but you know i gotta tell you i'm not a pacifist mm, yeah. uh, on any level like uh you know and it I, and i'll take it to like a very small like just you know very small interpersonal things but you know like uh in school uh if a bully 
uh, you know, had a problem with me, which happened quite a bit, you know, push me, hit me, some shit like that. I absolutely believe the right thing for me to do is to hit back. You know, mm. believe the right thing for me to do is win. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. I'm very, very far from the pacifist uh, mentality. And I, as much as I respect Buddhism and I, I lean toward that type of spirituality, I'm not, you know, I'm not a turn the other cheek type of dude. So yeah, Andreas mom already had me interested because he's, you know, what he discusses is if peaceful protest isn't working, are we ethically responsible to do something more? Right. Yeah. I think that's a really good summary. Right. Cause it's like, he doesn't get into uh, too much about it, but he does definitely mention like, despite all the progress that the climate movement has made, all the millions of people that have joined it, um, you know, even it being a presidential talking points and we've got these international conventions where all these governments get together, thoroughly studied by these international groups, et cetera, et cetera. Like what, I mean, our emissions are still going through the roof, like rising exponentially, right? So yeah. it's like at a certain point, when does business as usual and kind of like the respectable channels, when does that become a dead end? And if we're truly in service towards creating a, a planet that's habitable in the future, when does resistance uh, commiserately ramp up with that, right? Yeah. And, and of course, in, 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 in so many ways, we are uh, beyond the threshold of being able to return. So there are certain things that are already just going to happen. There's, there is no amount of cutting back on uh, carbon emissions that are going to stop certain events from happening, like the, uh, the Western Arctic ice shelf, a uh, certain amount of sea level rise, a certain amount of temperature rise but right. what, what, what scientists are you know pleading with uh with the ruling class and the leaders of these nations is to create uh enough change to keep us in a survivable level of one degree celsius is i guess we have no or 1.5 degrees celsius we absolutely have no choice that's we're going to hit that that's you know and that's going to mean a lot of beaches are going to be gone you know beaches you might have visited as a child beaches you might live at those right. are not going to exist anymore. Sand beaches, as we know it, are going to disappear. Islands are going to disappear. And a lot of that is, that's set in stone. Uh, mm. But what they, you know, what they know is that at a two degrees Celsius rise in temperature, we can still survive as a species. We can still keep a lot of the fauna and flora on this planet here with us. We could stop the mass extinction event. Right. Beyond that point, we're looking at a mass extinction event that. Right. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I, I mean, just initial impressions of the book here, man. I mean, it's like, uh, and it's very academic in a lot of ways, but I, I appreciate the thorough kind of intellectual examination of, of these questions, right? And like, you're getting into things like, what does it mean to be violent or nonviolent, right? Does, let's say some example of like, blowing up a pipeline, right? Like some yeah. sabotage action, does that what, where does that fall, you know, kind of like theoretically and or in our in our sense of what it is. And it, it seems like he he came around to a point of like, yeah, sure. Um, well, it's not harming human life most of the time um, in, inherently uh, blowing up a pipeline, for example, um, it will be perceived as an act, act of violence. So whatever, let's just accept it as an act of violence. Um, but, you know, he talks about mor moral pacifism and strategic pacifism and stuff of that like that. And I know we'll get into some of the more details of the book and his argument. Um, but yeah, you know, generally speaking, I, I thought it was a really good, really good book. Um, it, it hit a lot of the points for me. I think the biggest thing, um, the biggest chapter for me was uh, 
gosh, I'm honestly all of them. But the first one I was going to say is uh, the, the fighting despair chapter where it's like, you know, he lays out some arguments that are pretty, pretty common um, in this time for, for wanting to just give in to despair, essentially. But also, um, I really liked where he was kind of like, you know, he's a historian, I think, as well. So he digs into a lot of social movements and stuff. In a way, uh, he's kind of revealing um, some of the truth, like we've mythologized some of these social movements. We're talking like civil rights, Nelson Mandela, Gandhi, yeah, even like slavery or women's right to vote. You know, we think about these as like, oh yeah, they were nonviolent movements, and everybody was like, we just like convict, pull enough heartstrings, and everybody is like on board, and that's yeah. totally not true. You know, he he like talks some trash on Gandhi, which I kind of appreciated for perspective, you know. And and, and that doesn't, you know, it doesn't detract from uh, Gandhi's accomplishments. That, that's not what this is about. That's not what he's after. But what he is, what he is, what he is saying is that <clears throat> India's liberation from the British Empire was not a nonviolent, not a completely nonviolent occurrence. It wasn't just that they marched to the sea to collect the salt and boom, this empire decided to give them the you know freedom there right. there was so much uh bloodshed and that that one is particularly unusual because in in because gandhi was often fighting alongside the british so it was violence right. in a very unusual way uh gaining respect in their military fighting in like fighting in world war one with them recruiting right. uh a million and a half indians to fight in world war one with great right Britain. right yeah yeah, that was mind blowing. And also like some of Gandhi's uh, like kind of personal philosophy. Um, gosh, I mean, I, I really want to try to find a quote here. Oh, yeah. OK, here we go. Um, disease in the Gandhian view, disease, you know, results from impurity and must be allowed to do its cleansing work. The same goes for extreme weather and earthquakes. Right. So like there's this sort of weird. Um, I mean, on the one hand, it could be like, cool, like that's accepting of death or something like that. And and like that's something that all of us should meditate on more on and I and I believe that but also at the same time it's like very um gosh how do you say it it's just like well, I don't know what you're thinking on you that. don't have the religious fervor of Gandhi and Hinduism and in yeah yeah because uh, also another thing that he points out that Gandhi did that I was unaware of and I 100% disagree with on every level like also having said that I don't believe in look I, I believe in peaceful protests as a tactic for yeah. sure. And that's what right. Andreas Malm also believes. He believes in peaceful protests right. as a tactic. There are very, you know, but there are times when that is just absolutely out of the question. And that's when uh, Gandhi was, he sent a letter. This is in the, in the 1930s. This is before Hitler had fully come to power, but it was, it was already happening. It was before World War II had fully like, launched into like full scale conflict. Right, right. But the Nazis were already imprisoning the, the Jewish population, transferring to the camps. Uh, the Warsaw ghetto was already, you know, uh, there were starving people like in the in the cities they lived in. And Gandhi wrote a letter to the Jewish people of Germany saying, uh, turn the other cheek, you know, don't fight back. Wow. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. And your oppressors will be so shamed by their own behavior or some. Right, such, right. Uh, he actually uh, had to retract that letter because it was it was so fucking unpopular. <laughs> wow. Yeah, I wasn't aware of that actually. Um, yeah, thanks for that. And you know, Andres' mom in this book he brings it up several times. I find it fascinating and also important too when he's when he's talking about like uh, resistance and even if resistance is futile, you know what I mean? Like 
it, right. sometimes it's still the right thing to do. And uh, his, his example is the armed uprising of the Jews in the Warsaw ghetto yeah. during, the, uh, during the Nazis. And right. the, in what little uh, guns and weapons they were able to gather, uh, much smaller forces that, you know, there was barely, is barely enough soldiers. They were just doing some guerrilla street fighting. They had no chance of beating this uh, mechanized military force that was able to like, you know, that was going to like steamroll France eventually. Right, right. And, but they fought them anyway. And does history look back on them and say, oh no, they should have just, they should have just gone to Auschwitz. Right. No, yeah, nobody thinks not. that. Yeah, absolutely not. Yeah, and that's basically the point that he ended the book on, jumping ahead 160 pages, right? It's just like <laughs> he's like, you know, these these acts of resistance, even if it even if it's like impossible, right? It's still like it, it still restores like your your humanity and your sense of self-respect and just like the act of resisting itself um being just so profound. So, I appreciated that for sure. I wanted to uh, just just very quickly just uh, read a little excerpt from the book, too. And I think this is uh, one of the things. So this is one of the absolute, obviously, most famous examples of uh, violent resistance that oh. but but that worked. And of course, there are a million examples, but I like this one because it's so often said that slavery, <clears throat> like African slavery in the Americas, you know, in the United States and some of the. Uh, other countries was because of these pacifist white abolitionists in the north and mm. and their their pleas to the slave owners to you know to listen to reason and to and and that's the uh, another one of these like bizarre omissions of what really happened first of all i mean what it cannot be ignored in the, in the least is the fact that the american civil war came out of the abolishment of slavery and right, right, right. and the to this day the that the death toll of that war is almost as much as the aggregate of all other wars the united states has been in oh wow yeah but anyway i wanted to read the collective action against slavery before us took on the character of violent resistance this first sweeping emancipation of slaves occurred in the haitian revolution hardly a bloodless affair as some recall Slavery in the U.S. was terminated by a civil war whose death toll, as I had just said, was the, close to the aggregate of all other military conflicts. If there was one white abolitionist who helped precipitate that showdown, it was John Brown with his armed raids on the plantations and armories. Talk, 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 he exclaimed after yet another convention of a pacifist abolitionist society. That will never free the slaves. What is needed is action. So, yeah, that's, I mean, Brown that's, did nothing wrong. <laughs> John Brown. Anyway, you know there's a I, gun club called the John Brown Gun Club. Have you heard of them? I have not heard of the John Brown Gun Club. Well, look them up sometime, man. Pretty cool stuff. Okay, I will check it out. Right you know, on. What I always think, like, it's. Do you remember the TV show Cops? Yes. <laughs> I remember that. You know that just got canceled like last year. That shit was on TV since I was like a baby. That's insane. Was, That's insane. But he's like, bad boys. What you gonna do? But when he's like, but what he says is, he goes, "When Sheriff John Brown come for you, like that's oh. yeah, man." I didn't, I didn't realize John Brown's name was in there. Damn. Bad boys. <laughs> <laughs> what you gonna do? Yeah, dude, Jesus Christ! That's what a, a terrible show, by the way. Oh my God! Way to like just spread the freaking <laughs> worst myths. 
And uh, if if you don't mind, I just wanted to add uh, one. This is one more just quick excerpt from the same section of the book where you and because we we actually didn't even touch on the suffragettes, which sure. was uh, as uh, history would have it, you know, and you know the way it's often told as how it would probably be taught to you in ninth grade in high school is that that was a peaceful that the women just asked. They were like, come right. on, let let us vote. Please let us be uh, citizens. They put uh, on their finest livery and paraded about downtown yeah, and passed yeah. out flowers and everything was great. Yeah, which is not the case. Uh, when the suffragettes took to the streets, they had had enough of women being excluded from the state for centuries. Uh, and this goes, this ties into also part of the civil rights movement. When he moves forward to, from his Birmingham jail, Martin Luther King pointed out that we have waited for more than 340 years for our constitutional and God-given rights and explained to his white addressees that there comes a time when the cup of endurance runs over. Many, if not most, struggles in the past have obeyed such a temporality of exasperation. Enough is enough. Uh, enough is enough. It is subordinate to prognostication. The worst has not happened. It is on the way at speed. So, uh, and then this is the, just to tie it all together, I feel like this kind of catches a lot of what we were bringing up earlier. Perhaps an applicable analogy here is with fascism. The resistance against it is ever the worst case for pacifists. In the early 1930s, it became more evident by the month that Germany was slipping down a slope that would end in the Nazi seizure of power. How much valuable, irretrievable time has been lost? As a matter of fact, not much time is left, cried one of the voices that most insistently warned of the danger and urges audiences to spare no efforts in combating it. Mm. I feel like I, I picked a kind of a, a weird excerpt there, but I felt like it, uh, it caught a lot of, uh, a lot of what we were getting at because we did, we talked about the Nazis. We talked about. And also the, the, the timing of that too, right. It's also like there with the, with the, the rise of the Nazi threat, right. It's like, it's, it's time to meet that head on basically. So, um, and yeah, I feel like, well, it's different, right it's a different threat. It's still, I think the analogy still holds with climate change. Oh, I was just going to say it, it is difficult. Uh, and, you know, he goes uh, really in depth into this a lot that it's very difficult to compare climate change and global warming precisely to some of these other movements, uh, movements such as like uh, anti-fascism in World War II, uh, the suffragette movement, uh, women, right. you know, gaining the right to vote, becoming uh, just basic citizens uh slavery people were getting freed from slavery and then of course going into the civil rights movement and the thing is the thing he was saying with martin luther king and, and malcolm x is that part of what the kennedy administration realized was that if they didn't make concessions right to mlk and the peaceful movement that he was bringing there was a radical flank that was there ready right. for everyone to move to right and that's was you know that's what really terrified the aides of the JFK administration. So, right, right, right. I'm glad you brought up that term, radical flank. I don't know if I'd like technically heard it in the way that he uses it before. Um, but obviously, there's there's a ton of examples through history, and I, I think he he just keeps bringing them up, and I really appreciate that because it's it's basically he's like it seems to me that most of the book is basically laying down the logic for a heightened militancy within the climate movement, right? And it's like this militancy that and that has to be uh, in beneficial relationship to the mass movement, right? It can't be separate from the mass movement. It kind of has to work together to some degree. 
And but he also, you know, he also brings up that there's there's some dangers in that, right? Like there's a positive radical flank effect and a negative one. The positive yeah. one being that, like, you know, if there's like radical sabotage, et cetera, et cetera, um, that's showing that, like, okay, these main these more mainstream um, climate movement folks uh, might signal to governments and corporations we can talk with them, right? It's not like you know it makes they're the lesser evil of these power hold to to the power holders right but then there's also that negative radical flank effect which could be that uh and and this is kind of he gets at this later in the book it's just like this is kind of the tightrope that people considering taking these actions need to need to really think through and that's that there could also be a really like negative reflection on the movement as a whole if say like one person got killed or something in the act yeah. of blowing up yeah. a pipeline or fucking with a refinery. And so there's a lot, there's a lot of um, moral capital, he called it, right? Like the moral righteousness of the climate movement. We want to have a habitable, habitable fucking planet, totally moral for the future, for my grandkids, etc. But that that moral capital can easily get thrown away in like a careless act, that kind of thing. So so it, but it, but yeah, I appreciate that radical flank effect for sure. I don't know if there's anything you wanted to say more on that, but I feel like for me that springboards into like this other term that he brought up that I've heard elsewhere in a lot of activist circles, and that's um, the diversity of tactics. So I don't know if you want to say anything on those or. Yeah, I uh, I I agree. Everything you just said uh, was all stuff from the book that I found to be like you know he's he's dead on. He's absolutely right with all this, and mm-hmm. uh, moving into the tactics sounds great. But before we go further i would like to just take one step back because uh a few minutes ago just for some reason i was having a hard time just putting into words what i meant uh when i said that it's different when we're discussing suffragettes uh slavery civil rights uh fascism all these things and one of the and the reason that it's so different is because oftentimes the climate change the with uh with some of these other things that had to be fought against there had to be these huge movements the pain and damage had already occurred. It had already happened. So to, to the women in the suffragette movement, they had already uh, had, you know, suffered under these unjust conditions. People in slavery obviously had already suffered under those conditions. There was something very human to fight against. Same with civil rights, obviously same with fascism. But with climate change, we have yet to see what's going to happen because what's going to happen is still in the future. All right, we had a slight disruption. The CIA found out we were reading this book and talking about it, so they had to cut us down. They were like, <laughs> so we're going to be yeah. back on the, this, to, this has to be a, a comedy podcast. I forgot at all times. So uh, Yeah, I had to dip into the bushes. <laughs> Pipeline, blow it up. That's the way we'd like to fuck. Loot up. All right. Is that enough fucking tomfoolery for you? Uh, yeah. Ooh, what I was just, where, where we? Where, where we? what I was trying to fucking say uh, is that in so many of these instances uh, of oppression where people had to fight back, and let's just pick one, uh, just one of the more recent and, and also so close to our times too, because here in America right now, the civil rights movement is alive and having to fight constantly. Uh, you know, we've had BLM the past few years and it's, you know, it's on the forefront of everyone's mind, but uh, thinking about the civil rights movement of the 1950s and 60s, 
is that the oppressors were well known as you know and, and, and things were very easily seen and the, and the people that were in the movement had already been harmed the harm had already mm. happened you know mm. and it was and it's so people could mobilize and have this shared experience and i think one of the problems with explaining you know and obviously millions and millions of people around the world are combating these uh fossil fuel industries and these uh these capitalist governments but what's what the the difference is is that the harm hasn't happened yet or it's only it's only happened uh you know it happens like you said it's happening in in, in india it happens in, in the philippines uh it happens in uh a lot of these island nations these is where people are suffering the most or the places where the carbon emissions are happening the least oftentimes uh but who will be truly the the people who really suffer will be, you know, you and I later on when we're older men, our children, our grandchildren, if it gets, you know, potentially our grandchildren will be living in a mass extinction event. And that will be the end of not just humans, but this, you know, the whole planet as far yeah. as life on this planet as we know it. Mm -hmm. So if you don't mind, I would like to read one excerpt uh, very quickly. And I feel like it's... Uh, just it shows a lot of how Andreas mom makes these points and I, I like how it's worded and that's why I picked this one. Uh, yeah, please go right ahead. So Andreas says, thus we find ourselves between two scissor blades. On the one hand, unbending business as usual, taking emissions ever higher and confounding hopes for mitigation. On the other, delicate ecosystems crashing down. The extraordinary inertia of the capitalist mode of production meeting the reactivity of the earth. This is the temporal predicament in which the climate movement has to devise meaningful strategies. Even under optimistic assumptions, the pathways to a tolerable future are rapidly narrowing. In the words of the umpteenth scientific supplication for immediate global action, using models with incomplete representation of positive feedback mechanisms, writing in 2019, another year of rising emissions, Dan Tong and his colleagues concluded that 1.5 degrees Celsius still remained technically possible on two conditions. First, to have a reasonable chance of respecting the limit. Human societies would have to institute a global prohibition of all new CO2 emitting devices. Now, the mm. likelihood of the ruling classes implementing a global prohibition of all new CO2 emitting devices because scientists tell them to or because billions of people would otherwise suffer grievous harm, or because the planet could spin into a hothouse, is about the same as them lining up at the summit of the steepest mountain and meekly proceeding to throw themselves off the edge. And I believe Andreas Mom is correct in saying that the uh, the capitalists, the you know, the CEO at ExxonMobil, the CEO at Shell, the CEO at BP, and all their other you know uh, executives they have a, about as much chance of listening to the pleas of people saying, Hey, you know, we, we, we have to stop this. The planet's going to go into a hothouse zone. The wildfires are going to increase. The hurricanes are going to increase. The polar ice caps are going to melt. They don't give a fuck, dude. <laughs> yeah. It's a, yeah. it's, it's a, it's a level of greed and, it's a sickness, man. It's a, it's an illness. It's a, it's, 
I consider it in so many ways to uh, certain types of like psychopathy, narcissism, or even uh, in some ways how a drug addiction can control you. Ooh, yeah. Yeah. I've been thinking about that parallel to addiction in a big way for sure. Um, yeah. Yeah. And the rich, right. They have the, they have the resources to insulate themselves from the worst of it through so much of this. Right. Um, if it's like too hot in one place, just eh, pick up and go to another. Um, well, you were talking about, uh, the diversity of strategies, diversity of tactics. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, I've heard that term from a variety of places, but, um, a friend of mine was actually at Standing Rock for a period of time and also involved in various other street level protests outside of that movement. Um, and, and he just provided me with some really, really good, like tangible examples of how frustrating that is when there's, you've got a group of people, say you have a mass mob and there's, there's certain elements there that are really willing to take up a heightened level of say militancy, whether that's like conflict with the police, whether they're down to like throw shit or like battle with them. And then, and then a lot of times, um, others that are really like absolutely oppose that right and so so i think one thing that mom is trying to to encourage us to do is to really try to integrate you know the kind of the more the more peaceful mainstream movement which he you know he does uphold as being really important if uh, for no other reason as it's a really good entry point for most people right like yeah, most people are down to show up to a gathering a protest whatever a demonstration a lot less people are willing to show up if they know they're going to be battling cops and probably get charges, you know, yeah. that kind of thing. So, so, but I think the respect there needs to be there. Right. And it's almost like if you see some people, if you're in a, in a, in a demonstration or an action, and there's some people that are willing to take it way further than you feel comfortable with, maybe you should go elsewhere. Maybe you should, uh, you know, um, just get out of that space find other ways to put on pressure right but like i think there's also um kind of a history of the mainstream environmental movement throwing more radical elements like earth first and earth liberation front under the bus um and and not like not really finding a way to to integrate these these tendencies right so i think i think he he presses on this point numerous times it's just like you know, they need to work in, in a beneficial dynamic relationship, the militant wing and the mass movement, you know, and I think that was true. And in, in a lot of liberation struggles, right. Um, you know, you mentioned um, like the icons of Martin Luther King and Malcolm X, right. You have the civil rights and black power. And, uh, if, um, if you don't mind, can I, can I uh, interject one thing too, that, that comes to mind so yeah. much when you bring this up, uh, it's uh, when you, when you were talking about standing rock, I was thinking about the two women, that we're actually going and uh, perforating the uh, pipeline. But that's actually not where I wanted to go. Where I wanted to go was the fact that uh, so many of these environmental groups, which I absolutely respect and I love, and I'm glad you're out, you guys are out there and I am in no way, I'm not against you or do I think you're wrong? I just think that uh, these these absolutely uh, concretely held beliefs that there cannot be more radical action or else it will turn away the masses. I just, I just think it's patently untrue. And the reason I believe that is, and, and, and it's in my own personal experience, the most massive protests that I personally have ever attended have all been uh, in the BLM movement, you know? Right. And, and just like right. you said, though, like, you know, I showed up to the BLM protests because I knew they were going to be mostly peaceful. I knew there was a, a very unlikely, you know, chance that I was going to get uh, killed by a cop or whatever, uh, mm-hmm. you know, and, and there was always the you know opportunity to 
you can go for the 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 part where you know when I was there, you know, there's and I'm surrounded by ten thousand people and I'm pretty well insulated. And then things always typically get a little more crazy in the night, and I have the freedom to go home and not participate in that. And right. uh, the reason I bring this up is is in Minneapolis uh, after the murder of George Floyd, and people were ultimately, you know, uh, understandably upset to the breaking point, and right. in, in holding up a sign and saying "Hell no, we won't go and shit" is not you're not. And with with this many with you know murder after murder after murder of uh, unarmed black men by bloodthirsty cops, you know that was what was going on. You know that's uh -huh. so. This is what happened. They go into the precinct. Uh, they they that the that uh what the fuck's that asshole's name that Derek Chauvin was from, and right. they lit his precinct on fire. And it you know and, and this photo goes worldwide. And here in America, still a very, very, I mean, sadly conservative country where like, you know, but at that time, that didn't push anyone away from the BLM movement. People didn't mm. see that police station on fire. And, and I mean, obviously, some people did, of course, all white supremacists look at that and, and, and they're like, no, you know, but I'm not counting them. They don't fucking count. Those are irrational people. I'm saying your average rational person looked at that and they were like, well, what the fuck else are we gonna do? I mean, right, they are right, right. murdering people on the street on camera. They don't even care they're being filmed anymore. And right. that was one of the things. Is, I mean, and maybe it's just something to think about. What people saying that uh, when something more radical happens, it's gonna push away the other members of the movement. And that is not right. all at all the case. And that wasn't the case at BLM. And there was plenty of things that got torched. And, right, right. The, and the movement uh, succeeded. I mean, not, you know, not entirely, but it's still a strong, powerful movement. It's still here. You know, at least one person had got convicted. Like, you know, one, you know, Derek Chauvin went to prison. He did. So. Yeah. Right, right, right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, yeah, witnessing cop cars on fire and police stations on fire, I think got a lot of people to be like, holy shit, like maybe this is more of a problem than I thought. And I know that that certainly happened with me. And so all of a sudden I'm like reading a t fuck ton of books and a fuck ton of articles and exposing myself to like all these perspectives on, um, you know, racial injustice in America specifically that I hadn't really considered before. And, um, but gosh, fuck man we're in a real fascist reactionary pushback from that though aren't we it's fucking rough man i would say not to say not to detract from any of the militancy or any of the any of the social movement revolving around blm in 2020 um, something that andre's mom also brings up i'm not going to read a direct quote i'm not going to look for one but he did say that there right now it's almost as though there's a monopoly of uh of this type of violence on the right like mm -hmm. the far right are the only ones committing any acts of violence. Oh yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So I guess one other thing I wanted to say about the diversity of tactics is also, he, he, he mentions a little bit about um, the temptation to fetishize one kind of tactic. And he yeah. says that that should be resisted. And this applies both to property destruction and other forms of violence. We don't fetishize that shit fetishization of you know pacifism strategic pacifism too so don't hold gandhi on a pedestal and think like oh nonviolence is always always the way right like millions yeah. of people holding up signs and honestly like has the george, george floyd act even like passed you know um and, and gosh how much more funding has police gotten all this stuff anyway what i guess what i'm trying to just say is like peaceful 
violent, nonviolent, peaceful, not peaceful, direct action. I, I think it's like, it's not just don't don't get too stuck in one mode, right? Be dynamic, be flexible, be adaptable. No, if you're if you're working any of these actions, it's like work with a crew and have absolute trust. And but also, you know, these these movements can't be really need to be integrated in a in a dynamic way. And that's a it's a really delicate dance and balancing act. And you know, he doesn't he doesn't outline this is the way to do it. He just kind of presents different considerations, I think, for people that might want to get involved on the movement on any of these levels, whether it's like the kind of traditional mass movement, nonviolent, or something and, way more direct sabotage. I, I'd like to bring up too that uh, we, because uh, this is the way that Andreas Malm uh, positioned it in his book, because this is the way I guess most people prefer to philosophically, we are under the, we're going under the assumption that uh, destruction of property is a form of violence. We're just going to go ahead and accept that. I'm not going to argue against it. And in some, right. in, in, and of course, in some instances, it very much is. I mean, for instance, if, if you are hungry and I destroy your farm, you know, I've committed an act of violence against you because you will later on uh, starve. That's for sure. But uh, I, th I think what I'm tr trying not not to get just go all the way just out of left field, but with with uh, the two women that were tampering with the uh, pipeline at Standing Rock, right? That is okay. If you want to say that's an act of violence against the shareholders of that particular fucking energy company, so be it. But it's not the same thing as Kyle Rittenhouse taking a rifle into uh, a protest and murdering protesters with his rifle. That's, right. that is actual violence. That is, you know, that is, that's taking human life. That's harming a human. Humans are sentient. Uh, mm -hmm. Pipelines are not sentient. And, and then I'll stop there. And from, from here on out, we can go ahead and go back to destroying property is a form of violence. But <laughs> I just, <laughs> just yeah. I had to throw it out there that, you know, as you can see, you know, in my heart of hearts, I don't, I don't, I don't equate uh, destroying some, you know, piece of machinery that belongs to a multi-trillion dollar corporation uh, to be anything the same as what right-wing violence is, which is often murder uh, yeah, or things of that nature. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Fighting I want despair. to shift. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right. Fighting despair. Yeah. Um, I mean, I guess there was one thing I wanted to get into just a little bit, and that was he he wants to distinguish between luxury emissions and subsistence emissions. Yeah, yes. And but, I, I love this so much. It's so fucking important, dude. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Right. So, like, you know, one of the questions I want to ask you right now is just like if you could press a button and stop all fossil fuel infrastructure, like today, would you do it? Well, no, see, that would be an act of violence, because I mean I, that would cause people that are in uh, certain areas. I mean, if I guess if you were in Egypt, you would immediately die. I mean, many people would just die of heat if you were. I mean, right, right. We, right. So the the, 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 the argument majority. here is not to like to instantaneously stop carbon emissions. The idea is to transfer to clean energy, which is right. not a far fetched science fiction for us to ponder this this tech this technology is real we just have capitalist governments or governments that are controlled by 
private capitalists that are right, right, right. that either can't or won't do anything about it. That's what we're talking about. Is these these are the people that aren't listening to us. So mm. I'm I'm sorry. I went I went off a little too hard on your question. Answer is no. I, no. I would not press the button and end all fossil fuel production today. Instantaneously. Yeah, that's fair. And and I guess the reason I bring that up though, with the context of luxury and subsistence emissions, right, is like we don't want to harm however many billions of people are dependent currently on the like the the energy infrastructure that we have right and so like it's really like let's go after luxury like we'll keep subsistence for now transition like you're saying but um but yeah the conspicuous consumption of fossil fuels is uh an absolute crime especially in luxury emissions definitely have to be the first to go we're talking like super yachts and private jets and multiple homes and many, 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 many millions invested into different real estate projects, et cetera, et cetera. I think like, um, I think that shit's insane. Um, just the extravagance of, um, of the super rich right now, to be completely honest. And I, I don't so recall the, the exact figure, but it's, it is the super yachts and right. out of all the and super yachts are, I mean, they're fucking like, they're almost like a floating town. They all belong to like right. one, one uh you know jeff bezos obviously he has one of the most the most egregious super god i've ever seen in my life but uh we've been hearing so much stuck somewhere what i think it's currently stuck somewhere good they like, should sink uh, it should scrap yeah, it'd be it awesome <laughs> <laughs> uh, but i i believe there's a, there's a fleet of uh of what uh qualifies as a super yacht i think there's about 300 in in the, right. in the world and i don't remember the figure exactly so i can't quote precisely but it is he he brought up a country that had a population of about 10 million people and he said that these 300 people's luxury yachts produce more carbon emissions than this entire country of 10 million and also and he goes on to say too that it's stopping luxury emissions like super yachts uh people having uh, fleets of private jets having 15 palaces all this shit that's actually you know that's not going to stop the majority of what's what the problem is the problem is going to be with the with the industry itself of course but the way our governments work and he brings this up with uh emmanuel macron in france is Mm -hmm. you know when he started trying to make some uh energy cuts what he happened was he attacked the bottom 10 percent of the population and left the richest one percent alone So, so and that's that's the exact way that all of these uh capitalist governments are going to work first they're going to go after the poor and be like, okay, you can't have subsistence energy. And, but, you know, Elon Musk can fucking keep shooting his dick rockets for no fucking reason, you know? <laughs> yeah, for real. Yeah, man. And, hey, man, um, I, I, and I, dude, I'm, I'm a sci fi guy, dude. I wanna, I wanna believe we're gonna go to Mars and do all this shit. I just, yeah. you know, it's Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos shooting their dick rockets around and just burning up gigatons of uh, fossil fuels. I think we've got some problems to address first here on earth. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. If they, if they create like some interstellar little fleet of ships to bail on planet earth and like upload their freaking consciousness onto some weird ass computer, that sounds like a fucking nightmare. If you don't mind, I I would like to uh, quote from the book one more time. This is actually something he brought up after, after he had moved past the like, all right, we need to start with the super rich because the insane luxury of just being in a private jet nonstop flying around. And, you know, like the, he was talking about some Royal family that had like, they had a, a birthday party 
where they flew all uh, of their friends on 186 different private jets to like multiple locations. Look, I get it. I'm not a hater, but at the same time, we have to share this planet and that level of greed is just going to be unacceptable. <laughs> it's just, you're the ones you have to go first. Not, not the people that have a rice patty or they don't have to go first. You have to cut your emissions first. That's anyway, I'm going <laughs> to, I'm going to go right into this uh, quoting from Andreas mom, not just me and my opinions. <clears throat> Andreas mom goes on to say, it would be a convenient mistake, however, to think that consumption is a problem exclusively of the super richest 0.0027%. Not even luxury emissions are their prerogative. SUVs have conquered car markets with stunning consequences for the planet. In late 2019, the IEA reported that this was the second largest driver of the increasing global CO2 emissions since 2010. The power sector came first, the swelling SUV fleet second, beating heavy industry, cement, iron, aluminum, and aviation, and shipping by wide margins. So uh, if SUV drivers were a nation, in 2018, they would have ranked seventh for CO2 emissions. Something just to bring, That's just wild. so not just the super rich, but just the fact that as a culture, as the IEA noted, these vehicles have sold, sold so well around the world because they are considered symbols of wealth and status, a mm. planet incinerated by the rich and the desire to count among them. So I guess that's what, when, when you go to the SUV question and why people, these are not super rich people. I know people that are, they are, you know, they are lower middle class, but they went and go, got, you know, put themselves underwater with a car note to get an SUV because it's just drilled into us that that is a, that's a status symbol. Right. But, but uh, to, to realize that's the second largest driver of CO2 emissions in the world, we should just fucking outlaw them, dude. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I, I feel a little nostalgia with that argument because I feel like um, in popular consciousness, maybe like 2004 ish, no yeah something like that like there was a time when yeah like the early 2000s when just like hating on suvs was pretty fucking pretty popular do you remember that shit yes i do and like <laughs> it was like you'd see a hummer and just like all the hippies in the car would just talk shit i love it yeah. <laughs> anyway yeah so let's start with luxury also rich people come on man like fucking have a life of meaning and substance wealth gold toilets all this shit I mean, it might be kind of fun, but also fuck off. Like, seriously, get a life, guys. Well, that's the thing so is that, that uh, as a culture, too, we're taught to believe that the the wealthiest people and the richest people are somehow superior or smarter or, or of, a you know, that they're in a higher class, which is. But these are the same people that are just as easily brainwashed as anybody who has had no education whatsoever and you know oftentimes worse into believing that that the meaning to life is the you know expenditure of money and fossil fuel mm -hmm. the meaning of life is to have the largest super yacht that you can have and to have as yeah. power over as many people as you can that's that's your meaning to life yeah mm. kind of like brings me back to a personal memory of 
I was at this boat party in San Francisco in the Bay and, um, you know, probably on some drugs, definitely on some drugs. And I was hanging out with a buddy and we were just kind of looking at the skyline, you know, San Francisco at night and just all the skyscrapers lit up. And he asked me some sort of question along the lines of like, so you, you know, you, you live a pretty simple life, right? Like you're in the country and all that. And that's cool. Like you, you grow plants or whatever. And, you know, uh, but what do you, you know, what do you, what do you think of, of like all this? And he just kind of like gestures to the city. And I'm like, well, uh, I didn't have like the best answer for him at the time, but I just like, because I guess I also wasn't sure exactly what he meant and I was high as hell, but it was like, um, you know, I feel like there's a lot of ways in which this like progress, social progress is to a large degree, kind of a, kind of a myth, you know, and it's like, cool. Yeah. These are beautiful trinkets right now. These, I mean, the architecture here, sure. It's stunning. It's grand, whatever. The lights are fucking amazing. And also it's not really providing for fundamental human need and well-being and nor is it taking care of that of that place you know and um so i don't know i, I still still wrestle with that but um yeah anyway the stuff which, you think about too is you know what what a bummer to have spent you know to to spend your entire life uh being some kind of like hedge fund manager and you don't have time for anything you, you never go out in nature you never really yeah. take care of your kids you get the you buy this house in san francisco it's it's you know it's 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 you know 50 million dollars uh but because of one of the companies that you're that you represent somehow like exxon mobile and the fact that nobody's doing anything san francisco just goes underwater and your 50 million dollar <laughs> house is submerged right. Right, right, right. That's, I don't know, that's there's something, there's something to think about. I'm sure I, I highly doubt that uh, many hedge fund managers that with fifty million dollar houses in San Francisco are a big fan of yeah. podcasts about Andreas Mom. But yeah. if you're out there, man, just think about it. For sure. <laughs> you know, you mentioned addiction earlier, and I feel like there's such parallels um, between this culture and also the, our obsession with the rich and the lifestyles of the rich and famous, as the famous '90s show or whatever. But like. Man, I actually have a lot of sympathy for kind of for the the sort of like mythical rich person in my head. You know, I'm like, how how hollow of an existence is that where everything's measured by wealth and money and status? Do you really have friends? What does a friend really look like in that context? You know, is it about uh, showing off extravagance? Um, What is meaningful connection in that? And, And yeah, if you're completely insulated from your environment socially and and, and ecologically speaking, um, from nature, et cetera, like, how do you, how do you even function? And, and also, like, maybe there's people that want to let go of some of those trappings, you know, some whatever billionaires or something. But how do you let go of that? How do you shed that? It's got to be fucking hard. It's a it's a weird club, man. It's like, and once you're in the club, it's very hard to leave that club. I had, uh, yep. I had heard a very interesting take. And this is slightly different but it, it, it is all among the uber wealthy and these are the people that were going to uh like they would go to jeffrey epstein's island uh mm-hmm. there was also a place here in the united states and i'm blanking on the name of that but i believe it was in utah and it was uh, another such place uh of human trafficking and there was a guy and it was his job to uh, one of the main purposes of this is it's political uh, blackmail and espionage. So what you do is you get a, you get a senator 
you get them to go to your, you know, sex trafficking compound, you film them, you can photograph them. And then later on, when you need to tell them that uh, they're going to vote no on uh, capping carbon emissions, they vote no on capping carbon emissions. Like, or, you know, or, or, what, or for whatever fucking reason. I mean, I'm how, you know, there's no way for me to possibly know who is this, this you know, this is, we're talking about like high level, uh, you know, spy shit. This is, this is like Mission yeah. Impossible, James Bond shit. But it is all very yeah. real. This because they there was one guy that they did interview, and he he was a uh, his job was to uh, I guess get a telephoto lens and get shots of these uh, senators at you know committing these crimes. And his description of it was that it's like uh, the most extravagant yacht in the world you've ever seen. And if you get on the yacht, once you've gotten on it, you can have anything you want. Everything is free and everything that you want or could need is on that yacht. But you can never get off. Once you've stepped on, that's it. You're permanently on the right. yacht. If you want to leave, the only way to leave is to die. Gotcha. <laughs> it's fucking wild. So let's move let's move into the fighting despair man because Andre's yeah, mom is yeah. he's not uh he's not a nihilist man why, yeah. why else would you yeah. write a book of this if he was a nihilist right did you have any quotes from that that you wanted to pull up i, yeah, I really but... uh i really really appreciated something in particular that he said because there's uh mm -hmm. there's some philosophers and who knows what their what their motivations are if they're being i i oftentimes think that some of these guys are being paid you know that they're an op you know they're a fucking mm. You know, it's like a bot on Twitter or, you know, but right. some of these guys that are coming out with these, these, uh, cl climate fatalism, give up. It's fucking too late, you know, but what he said, so he's speaking about these, uh, some of the more famous, uh, of these philosophers and intellectuals, academics are saying that, sure. uh, and he said, you won't hear anything like this in Dominica. You won't hear poor people who today actually are at risk of dying in the catastrophe in the Philippines, in Mozambique, in Peru, say, I am the destruction. It's an aesthetic experience. I may as well laugh at it. So uh, we're, you know, this is what the fucking, this is what these fucking guys say, you know, but anyways, back to the quote. Where climate death is a reality, not philosophical chic, pragmatic fatalism of the Scranton Friends in School has zero traction. So uh, I don't know, just thought that was, uh, pretty fucking spot on man uh yeah, absolutely climate fatalism is for the for those on top it's sole contribution is spoilage and i, I don't know mm. could agree more man yeah i feel you um i i gotta i gotta say maybe maybe you can help me out here on this one on there's this one quote from an author named paul kingsnorth that um i think is one of the one of the folks that he refers to one of the philosophers he refers to but I've read some of his stuff before. He's really, really compelling, really good author. Um, it's on page 140 if you're looking at the book. But um, maybe you can help me out here because I got to say that, like, out of all of the compelling arguments or kind of like schools of thought that mm -hmm. I find myself falling into the most, yeah, it's kind of what what Kings North lays out. And um, I'll just read a couple sentences here, and it's a. Uh, he writes that the unraveling of civilization is unstoppable, that the ecological crisis is uncontainable, and that collective action against either is a wild goose chase. And, and moving on, he says, uh, the same person, Kingsnorth, found a Swedish disciple in 
David Johnstad, a notable intellectual of the first cycle direct action groups, who now asseverated that it was all over and he retreated into the countryside to establish a farm for himself and his family and to learn to hunt. He wrote his first book on carbon rationing as a solution to the crisis, his second on the inevitability of collapse, and his third on the virtues of a self-sufficient household. And then he writes, the paths to cave in, to fighting, to, to despair, the paths are many. So, so yeah, Doug, I mean, I, I got to say, I fall victim to some of that stuff pretty, pretty easily. And um, I think that multiple truths can coexist, right? Mm -hmm. I think that there's a tremendous amount of energy that's already been invested into this system as it is. We're all so dependent on it that there is that there is a crash, you know, impending. And that's really fucking hard to deal with. And to, you know, when I think about that, I'm like, okay, so maybe there's an element, you know, you also mentioned some of these, some of these people that kind of are on this, like, how do you learn to die gracefully sort of thing? How do you just accept it and make the most meaning out of your life as you can. And I don't feel like that's a bad, a bad approach, you know? Um, oh, uh, I actually bookmarked exactly where Andreas Baum uh, uh, says his rebuttal to the, to what you had just read. So fuck yeah. I don't read know if you, if you want to hear that part, but yeah, uh, please. All right. He was saying this is uh, it is not a question of whether we can limit warming, but whether we choose to do so runs a standard phrase from the peer-reviewed literature on the state of the climate as we enter the 2020s. We here meaning humanity, which divides itself into antagonistic blocks. The precise level of future warming, Tong and his colleagues make clear, depends largely on infrastructure that has not yet been built. It could be blocked. The alpha and omega of the science of the cumulative character of climate change run contrary to the axioms of fatalism. Every gigaton matters. Every single plant and terminal and pipeline and SUV and super yacht makes a difference to the aggregate damage done. And this is just as true above 400 parts per million and one degree Celsius as it is below. It won't lose its truth at 500 parts per million or two degrees Celsius or higher still. The totality of global heating will always be a function of the totality of emissions, less of the latter, less of the former. So mm. positive feedback mechanisms do not cancel out this function, only beef it up. What he's basically saying is this fatalism shit. I mean, then you can make a million analogies, you know, uh, right. like and we're, we both spend a lot of years skateboarding, dude. Mm -hmm. uh, say you're skating and you fall and you uh, and you break your leg and now you can't skate. Should you break your other leg and both your arms? Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's over, I mean, you know, like, mm -hmm. so, I mean, yes, da damage is done. And maybe, maybe uh, with the point where we were skating, maybe that's, maybe that's done with, man. Maybe we're going to have to just say, fuck it. I got, you know, I have a, one less leg than I had before, but do you want to just go ahead and keep your other fucking functional leg and the other two functional arms? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that is yeah. the way I see, I, I see the, these climate fatalists as being like, oh, well, it's already some bad. Let's just end it. Right. Right, right. Yeah. And I mean, I've, I've underlined. Uh, yeah. Um, there's a few other quotes, too, that, you know, rebut that kind of that degree of fatalism. Right. It's like the fight is definitely not yet lost. It'll never be lost so long as we avoid extinction, because however warm the planet gets, it will always be the case that the decade that follows could contain more suffering or less. Right. Yeah. So it's like still get involved. Right? 
no more is required to maintain a minimum of hope. Just success is neither certain nor probable, but it is possible, you know? And I think that that kind of gets back to, um, we had spoken earlier of some of these social movements like the Warsaw Ghetto, right? The uprising in the Warsaw Ghetto in Poland against the Nazis. It's kind of like, it seems very hopeless, but also just the act of resisting, the act of doing something is like, is creating agency for yourself, right? And, and for your people. And, and through that act of creating agency, it's like you find, you find your freedom, you find your meaning and you, uh, you know, he's quoting Franz Fanon here, the cleansing force freeing from despair and inaction makes one fearless and restore self-respect, you know? So it's sort of just like, yo, regardless of how this shakes out, like keep fighting, keep working, don't give up. And uh, yeah, good pep talk, go team. And I, I, think, I think we really like landed it kind of right where he landed his, his, uh, his whole argument. It, it is right. those two, it's that one, first of all, we haven't lost. We still have a chance to succeed. Uh, there's still a lot, of, a lot of damage that can be reversed. And even since this book came out, which was last year, even more things have happened. Even more tech has been created. More green technology has been created. You know, more countries have gotten on board. You know, mm -hmm. so yes, there is plenty of a reason to be optimistic. Not you know, not toxically optimistic, but at least optimistic. And there's also, right. uh, like you said, even if these uh, these corporations and these ruling classes and these capitalist governments have brought us to the brink, yeah, the the Jewish uh, rebellion, the fighters in the Warsaw ghetto in Poland are an example of how you should end it, you know, like, right. Don't, you know, don't, it's uh, like, you see quotes as a pata too, you know, uh, rather die on my feet and uh, live on my knees. Yeah. 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 <laughs> hey, speaking of Zapata, if you, if you don't mind kind of like moving into just like more generalized reflection of the group, I, I wrote a little something that I'd like to share if that's cool. Absolutely, man. Right on. So, um, you know, when we talk about things like collapse or climate change, whatever, the end of civilization as we know it, I think there's a, and he, he kind of calls out some, some people in the environmental movement for being, um, how would you say, like, to focus on a problem of, say, like, overpopulation, saying like, oh, we need like, six billion less people or something yeah. like that and it's like yeah, okay yeah. what is your what's your policy proposal to achieve that and i think that's really fucked for so many reasons and i think a lot of people are starting to to like to recognize how whack an argument that is basically eco-fascism right and mm -hmm. so just to speak to that a little bit you know for me um the problem isn't humans necessarily you know i think that humans are actually what's going to get us out of this mess believe it or not i think it's a problem of capitalism of wealth of extraction and the legacy and the kind of ongoing um the ongoing colonialism the relationships that all of those uh, create seeing seeing people and planet as a thing an object to be used as we see fit but you know what i'm not anti-human we're meant to we're not meant to be uh, parasites we're meant to be caretakers and the most biodiverse regions have human cultures that have taken care of them for forever and to leave this ha this planet habitable for the future like that's our and not just habitable but i want like a fucking garden of eden you know what i'm saying yeah um, utopia. i think we really we really need to 
to embody that human caretaker ethic. And I think a big part of that has to do with relationships. It has to do with, it has to do with relating to the natural world. It's not just a thing to utilize. It's not just a resource for you, but it's its own living, vibrant being, right? And many, many of them. And, you know, for me, another form of activism um, is practicing ways of living outside of this dominant paradigm of cheap and copious consumption and insane resource use, right? A lighter footprint. But, you know, I recognize that this isn't about an individual choices. It's about a collective action. Only collective action can really save us, right? I think that for too long, there's been this like, oh, what's your individual carbon footprint, right? And I think that that's an interesting thought experiment, but I think, what didn't that come out like last year or something that that was actually like pushed by fossil fuel companies to yeah. try to like because it's because it's, 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 it's uh because it's irrelevant yeah <laughs> absolutely so i i don't know like yeah we need to transition away and we need to do it rapidly but it also needs to be controlled it needs to be it needs to mitigate the economic collapse and soften that blow and there are there i mean you mentioned technology like an extension of that there's there's ideas right there's have you heard of degrowth economics that's where you focus more on well-being care quality of life than say just like consumption and measuring like wealth by say like gdp and what that means right because like we have to downscale the economy too right it's not just fossil fuels like part of why we need we're so hungry for fossil fuels all this time is like this inherent need this drive to like we got to have like seven percent eight percent ten percent growth year after year after year fucking year it's crazy and that's like and in, in individual companies as well as like collectively as societies. But the, the one last thing you just meant up, you brought up Zapata and that, that made me really want to share this. And the, the Zapatistas um, who kind of have continued that, that legacy and Zapata's name, you know, they, they present this framework for action that I think is really compelling. And there's resistance on the one hand and autonomy on the other hand, right? So this book, this Andreas Malm is all about like, uh, thoughts around resistance i think but i also think that autonomy is really important you know and and autonomy meaning like not just a rugged individualist american one man with a gun out in the woods yeah fuck that shit i'm really sick of that myth but um you know working together with other people to build the new world in the belly of the old one you know and to also to put your energy into what and who brings you pleasure and connection and a meaningful life you know what i'm saying it's not just like it can't just be fight all the time if there's some people out there respect power to you but i also hope that you can find some joy and some peace and some happiness as well because you deserve it so on the one hand resist and on the other hand let's build that new world you know what i'm saying absolutely man and if you I'll, there's a there's just one last thing from the book and i he attributes it he attributes it to a black panther but he doesn't give the name of the guy who's quote uh, who it belongs to but it's yeah. that uh uh protest is me saying i don't like what you're doing to me resistance is me not letting you do it 